Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, all you Pfizer AstraZenecans. It's time to get your next Luddism vaccination booster shot with our technological immunologist, Mr. Matthew Dickerson. Happy lockdown, Matt. How's your week been? He asks ironically. <laughs> it has been interesting, hasn't it, James? And of course, here we are, Technology Podcast. We're having to use technology. We're in lockdown in our city. We yeah. can't even go and visit. We live, what, two kilometres apart? And we can't even just pop over and say good day and get inside a small room for half an hour together. Well, it feels like I'm in the same room as you right now, Matt. But yeah, quite clearly we cannot be. We won't mention it to our listeners, okay? I hope our listeners don't notice any difference whatsoever. It's just going to go so smoothly. Everything's going to be fine. You're in your house. I'm in my house. And we'll see what happens. But it has been an interesting week. What I've really noticed this week, the conversation that I've been having this week, James, have all been about the importance of communication. Yeah. And when we are in lockdown... When lots of shops are closed, when lots of people are in their homes, like you and I are in our homes now, then having that communication going, working, everything operating normally is critically important. I've had a few people I've spoken to in the last week that have had something go wrong. It might have been dropped the phone down the toilet was one particular problem I came across. Oh, no. Exactly right. And luckily, they didn't hand the phone over to me to have a look at while they were talking about having dropped it down the toilet, which sometimes does happen. (laughs) But that particular person, the business they ran, they got all their online orders, and their online orders have dropped a little bit at the moment, but all their online orders come straight to their phone. Suddenly, without their phone, they couldn't take any online orders. So it's just the importance of it. So it's not just about the state of mental health. It's not just about keeping in touch with loved ones, doing FaceTime calls, all those sorts of things. It's really about just how we operate on a day-to-day basis. So I've seen a few problems in the last week where someone has had an issue and getting it fixed, getting it fixed quickly is just so important. And you get so accustomed to being able to walk in somewhere, hey, I need this problem fixed, let's do it. That's right. But now suddenly you can't do that. So that's that's been the real thing I've seen the last week is just how important our communications is to our day-to-day life. And it's just, yeah, it's a fundamental. My goodness. Yeah, well, we're certainly learning a lot these days. Mm. Well, you've got a fair selection for us today, though. In today's episode, people, we're going to bring you a new dimension into the art of piano playing. The US Navy have decided to solar power their aircraft. We'll get you started on that first book that you've always wanted to write. But let's kick off with a story that's bound to get some people's blood boiling today. We're hearing more and more stories of businesses and borders requiring proof of vaccination. Whether you're for it or against it, it's going to be a thing. So I guess the question will be, how much of an inconvenience is this going to be, Matt? Well, hopefully not much of an inconvenience at all. And I think you're right. I think the secret to opening borders, getting back on planes, even just going to a cafe and having a coffee, I think a lot of that will be not only vaccination, but proof of vaccination. Yeah. And as we've seen with checking into various places we go there, it's no longer good enough to say, yeah, yeah, I've checked in, it's all okay. People want to see the check-in on your phone. And I think it'll be the same with vaccination. Oh, yep, I've had my two shots, everything's okay. Can you show me the proof of that, sir? Yeah. Now, of course, I've actually had my two shots and I've got my little certificate from the MyGov website. So I'm not likely to want to carry around a bit of paper with my certificate on there to show people, here's the proof of my vaccination. Luckily, technologies come to the rescue. (laughs) So we've got both Apple and Google with the Apple wallet and the Google Pay system have said that the MyGov certificate that you get issued from the Australian government will be able to be imported directly into both of those. So you'll be able to have your proof of vaccination in your wallet or in your Google Pay account. And if anyone asks, you'll be able to pull up that and show it to them just the same way as you can show someone your driver's license now, just the same way as you've got 
say, your credit card on your phone. So it's really getting to the point. We talked about a healthcare card a few weeks ago where you're really struggling to work out why you've got to pick up your wallet and take it out the door. And if you thought you were going to have a little vaccination card in your wallet, well, this will be a much smarter way to do it. Yeah, it looks like the old wallet's going to be a thing that we tell our grandkids about. That's right. With fond memories of the smell of that new wallet. <laughs> you kids have got it easy these days. We used to carry around a wallet. <laughs> so the other thing that's interesting here is that what I like about this is that the COVID Safe app was a dismal failure. Mm. And I remember at the time with the COVID Safe app, there was a lot of discussion around why were we going and developing our own thing when there were companies around the world that had already done all the hard work and developed it already. So why go and reinvent the wheel as such? This is good because the fact that Apple and Google have come out and said we've got it, they're all ready to go, means that our government doesn't have to say we'll go and spend a whole bunch of money on developing something that you can put on your phone, an extra app, hmm. as if we need more apps, <laughs> an extra app on your phone that you can then go and say, here you go, here's my little app that I use just for one little single solitary item. Hmm. Yes, well, the writing is on the wall, folks. Businesses don't want to be closed, and so if they're called a close contact site, they're going to be done for, and they've done it tough enough already. Enough said about that. Onto something a little less polarising, although I'm sure there are some accomplished pianists out there who are bound to get wound up about this next story. How are your piano skills with just 10 fingers? What about if you had 11 fingers to play with? You could play the piano even better. Matt Dickerson, if he were alive, would Rachmaninoff, uh, what would he have to say about this? <laughs> and moreover, what would our swamp-bound cousins of Louisiana have to say about this as well? You are stirring up trouble this week, James. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I just sort of put the feelers out there. It sounds like you're going crazy, James. Six fingers, 11 fingers, 12 fingers. <laughs> there was that movie Gattaca where there was a 12-fingered man, and I remember reading something about that at the time, where the director of that wanted to pay such attention to detail that the actual piece that he played in that movie was rewritten, the piano piece was rewritten, that it could only be played by someone with 12 fingers. Now, that's attention to detail, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, and look, how to maintain the rights, uh, safety uh, and security of your rights uh, to the music as well, I tell you. <laughs> That's right. Who knows? It might be some people in Louisiana playing that piece right now as we speak. But it does seem like a crazy concept to say, why do we need an extra finger? But scientists have developed this concept where they're actually strapping on an extra thumb onto a hand at the moment. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. Now, this is all part of the testing and experimentation. And one of the ways they're testing it is they're giving this to a pianist and saying, there you go, you've got your normal 10 fingers, strap this on as an 11th finger or a thumb if you want to be technically correct, and then you can control that thumb by, get ready for it, your foot. <laughs> so while you're there trying to use the pedals, you can also actually use this extra thumb. And if you get good enough, maybe... it's crazy. It, it does seem crazy. Maybe a thumb on each finger or each hand, sorry. So you end up with the 12 fingers to be able to play. It does seem crazy. And you're going to need some A-grade ninja skills there too. Some some like real circular breathing sort of thinking, uh, being able to control your thumb with your foot. Uh, so you reckon the old rub the tummy and pat your head, you need a bit more than that? Oh, that's... Yeah, 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 yeah. A bit more. <laughs> Well, that'd be a start. That'd it? be a start. That's right. So the idea here is not so much that the scientists want to develop a better way or more complicated way to play the piano, but it is about trying to help people that have lost a finger. An incredible number of people have lost a finger. Oh, of course. Or even to the point where it's a whole hand, where you've lost a hand. If they can get to that point where 
in the testing process, people can actually use the extra thumb in some way with enough dexterity, for example, to play the piano, then maybe they can get to the point where they can use that hand for picking up things or actually using it in useful life. And mm. you start to forget about how much we use, in particular, our thumb. If mm. I lost my little pinky, I could probably live with it. It'd be a good story to well, tell. Well, do you know what? The little pinky has got some really important uses. I could go into that for a little, for a little while. The little pinky, we actually use it a lot more than what you think. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all about pressure. I race mountain bikes and I've got a, a friend of mine who actually lost his little pinky left it behind on a tree as he went past a tree in a mountain bike race one time. Oh, wow. And he actually seemed to think it was okay, but maybe he was talking about just racing mountain bikes, not real life. So what's the pinky do for us? With bionic hands, it's all about pressure. You know, It's one thing to pick up a hammer and have a power grip. It's another thing to have a precision grip. Right. And with that precision grip, you need to have very fine nimble dexterity and your little finger is a pressure sensor. It, it actually helps you develop pressure yeah, right. in your grip. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, yep. Not a useless extra digit. Well, I take it back. I thought I could live without my pinky, but I was actually thinking that my thumb, I'd really struggle without my thumb because so many things that sort of pincer grip that we developed uh, how many tens of thousands or millions of years ago, mm. that pincer grip with a thumb and our other fingers. So imagine losing your thumb and then what you couldn't do or what you would struggle to do. And that's where researchers are at. The real challenge for them at the moment, though, is getting to that point where you can control it with something other than your foot. And you can imagine someone having a coffee, they've got their extra thumb strapped on and they start wiggling their foot around to pick up their coffee. Mm. So getting to that point where some other part of their body can control it, maybe the action of their arms. We're not yet talking about sticking something in their brain and then controlling that extra thumb with something inserted in our brain. But give it 100 years, maybe we'll be there. But at this stage, it's really just about getting some extra digits on your hand, getting something extra to try and help you if you've lost a finger or lost a thumb. Mm. People suffering from too many or too few fingers is more common than I actually realised. The first time I came across anyone with polydactyly or oligodactyly was in that movie where I learnt so much about life and who needs an excuse to mention The Princess Bride. <laughs> Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Montoya, of course, wants to exact revenge on Count Rugen, who has six fingers. Of course. Which presumably makes him relatively easy to identify. But Montoya didn't realise that one in every thousand babies is born with polydactyly. We never know how Count Rugen came to have six fingers. Yes. But I've come across many people with oligodactyly, mostly through accidents on the farm or involving machinery or even from racing mountain bikes. <laughs> but replacing or adding an extra thumb or finger may not be that unusual in the future. And folks, if you don't know what Matt's talking about with The Princess Bride there, you have homework. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Do yourself a favour. So, uh, tell you what folks, strap yourself in for some extraordinary jazz piano solos coming out of 52nd Street, New York now. And now at the end of winter, Australia's have a distraction from COVID. We now get to worry about bushfires, folks. And may I acknowledge our Greek and California brothers and sisters right now. If the threat is still very real, Matt, technology is at least stepping up again to send out some early support, I understand. I think one of the first stories we talked about, James, when we started this podcast series was spotting bushfires from satellites. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, and we did mention the fact that the bushfires of 2019-20 in Australia were devastating, the Black Summer bushfires. But then COVID came along and we almost shelved the focus on bushfires for a little while because this other thing has just controlled or consumed so much of our lives. But now bushfire season's coming again. You're right, we're getting towards the end of winter. And the Bushfire Building Council of Australia has announced a new app. And the new app is all focused on giving you some sort of gauge of your bushfire risk. So you feed some information in. The first information you put in is your address. 
And that kind of seems obvious. If you live on a, a beautiful, sprawling 25-acre block in the middle of a bunch of trees, you're probably higher risk than someone living in the centre of Sydney in a concrete jungle. Mm. So the first thing is your address. But then you go and answer a number of other questions. What's your home made of? Is it weatherboard? Is it concrete? What is the time frame from the last time you cleaned out your gutters? Do you have a forest growing in your gutters, for example? <laughs> what have you got around your house? Well, it's all about being proactive, isn't it? Proactive rather than being reactive, as we often are. That's exactly right. And when you do fill in the rest of these questions in this app, it will give you a star rating. But more importantly than that, it will actually say, here are some things you could do to reduce that star rating, i.e. move some of the things you might have around the edge of the house, clean out the gutters, that type of thing. Because embers, obviously, when you're in a bushfire area... Embers are the most common way for your house to catch on fire. And those embers only need a little bit. One example that it gave in this particular article was about if, for example, you had a a little timber boat or a kayak just parked down the side of the house. An ember floats through the air from maybe a fire kilometres away, lands on that little timber kayak. Yeah. Next thing you know, there's a little fire going at the side of your house, which gets into your eaves, gets into your roof, and that's sayonara to the house. Yeah, yep. and it's a story that's too often told um, in Australian summers. Yeah, that's right. So it, it is a, an important thing. So go and have a look for that. It's the Bushfire Building Council of Australia. It's a free app. You go and have a look at that and just see your details, put your information in and get that star rating on your home. So I think it's a really positive move. Again, thinking about bushfires a little bit earlier, I'm sure they'll be around this summer again. But if we just start thinking them about a bit earlier, then that might be a bit better for everyone concerned. Yeah, it's all about the old adage, a stitch in time. Okay, folks, electric planes, they've got some people nervous. Well, I guess how would you feel about a solar plane? Now, the US Navy is developing one that's going to fly for 90 days continually. Talk about cabin fever, folks. Matt, I hope this puppy's going to get above the clouds, though. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want to be out on too many cloudy days, would you? They are developing this uncrewed solar-powered aircraft. That, sorry, that's uncrewed as in U-N-C-R-E-W-E-D, not U-N-C-R-U-D-E. Yeah, that's good. As in, as in not crude. That's Yeah, right, okay. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so there's no rude pictures on it cool. and no people inside it as well. That's good. Okay, good, good, good. They did have a previous plane that would actually go and fly around for a period of time. That one was called the Solar Impulse, but that actually had pilots on board and they could actually stay up in the air for about five days but the limitation there was exactly you said a bit of cabin fever. Mm. Crew were up there in the air for five days. Sure, they could go to the toilet, they could eat. But they got to the stage where they went, you know what, I just need a break from this. So they couldn't keep going. Part of the concept here is to take the crew out of the equation, send the plane up in the air for, as you say, 90 days. And then you're not worrying about humans getting in the road, having to eat, having to go to the toilet, whatever else they might have to do. But the other part is you take the weight of the crew out of it and you can put other things in it. Of course. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So you're not talking about a really heavy aircraft here. So taking a few hundred kilograms out of the aircraft with humans out of the equation makes a difference. Now, you can put that weight into batteries, for example, because obviously it can keep flying when it's cloudy, but not forever. But mm. the batteries that are on there keep it going in the meantime. So it is an electric plane, but it's got a huge 72-meter wingspan. And that's for two reasons. One the obvious one, it's got solar panels across those wings. So you want Uh, as much solar energy being generated as possible. But the other thing is that when you've got that huge wingspan, you can fly at a lower speed before you hit your stall speed. And by doing that, that means that they can do the job they're designed to do. Now, the question that was the first thing to my mind was, why? (laughs) Solar-powered plane, up in the air for 90 days, but... 
Why? <laughs> Normally, my experience with planes is I get up on a plane to go from point A to point B. Yep. I don't want to take 90 days to go from point A to point B. How many laps of the earth do you need to do? <laughs> That's right. I just want to go down there. It's only a few hundred kilometres away. So the idea here is that they will use these for things like providing mobile phone reception. They'll use them for maybe surveillance, which, of course, they wouldn't tell us they're using it for that, but I suspect they'll use it for that. And some of the communications they might use it for might be, for example, out in the ocean when you're trying to get ships or submarines to have some communication in real time. A lot of the time when they're out in the middle of the ocean, there's no land tower nearby, so they're having to go via satellite. We've talked about it before. 35,786 kilometres is the distance above the Earth that geostationary satellites sit, and that can cause a few problems. Having a plane that might be, say, for example, I'm guessing these would fly in around the maybe 10,000 feet, maybe, say, three kilometres, maybe five kilometres above the Earth. Yeah, right. Having it at that level means you're going to have much better communications with anything, whether it be ships or whether it be in areas where you don't have good telecommunications on the ground, this can be used for that sort of communication. So I think huge potential there, mm. but it just sounds pretty incredible to me to put a plane up there without someone in it and see you in three months. <laughs> and all solar powered. That's oh. incredible. Further on the EV front, the US wants electric cars and they want them to be American-made, folks. What's President Biden's plan, Matt? I like his plan from two angles. I do, certainly anyone that's listened to our podcast probably has got the idea that maybe I've got a slight bent towards EVs. Something like that. I've heard a rumour. Yeah, that's right. I've got a slight angle that maybe this is our future. So the fact that he's finally come out after we've had that other president who didn't really get it, I don't think, but come out and said, by the year 2030... 50% of all our vehicles are going to be electric. So that's a good move. We've seen that happen in some states in America. We've seen that happen in some other countries. So I think that's not the hugest news ever, but it's a good step in the right direction. But the thing I think that's really going to get people stirred up about this is that he said, I want those to be American. Mm. And maybe part of this was clever politics because he wanted to get General Motors and Ford on board somehow. And if he just said, we're going to make 50% of cars electric by 2030, then the Volkswagens of the world or other companies from around the world be going, great, let's get into the American market. There's a huge market there for us. The fact that he got General Motors and Ford to come along at the announcement with him says to me, there were some hard negotiations that went on behind the scenes and then got them on board. They're going to have enough models, obviously, to take up that 50% that is required. But it also just helps keep that money in America It almost sounds like a Trump make America great again, doesn't it? Oh, that's sneaky. (laughs) (laughs) But they've got some... Listen, um, the thing that I find really interesting about this is that our own Prime Minister has has said that he wants to not just sign up to tokenistic sorts of things, he wants to invest in real technology. I wonder if this is like, uh, you know, this is something that we could possibly sign up to in Australia as well. This lockdown's really been affecting you, hasn't it, James? You've started to lose the plot, I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, we'll wait and see. (laughs) Great ideas, James. Great thoughts there, but I'm not convinced that this current government is really on board with your thought process. But we can live and dream and hope. Who knows? I need some sunshine. (laughs) Ford and General Motors have both got some models out there. The Ford Mustang Mach-E is out. The F-150 we've talked about. Mm. Uh, General Motors has got their big Hummer. We've talked about that one before. So they've got a few of those electric vehicles. They're not going to be the mainstream. In 2030, you're not going to see everyone buying an F-150. Actually, a lot of people do buy the F-150, <laughs> but not everyone buying a Hummer or the, the Mustang Mach-E. But these are the introduction cars in the electric range. We've still got nine years before we hit that target. Ford and General Motors will have a 
truckload, excuse the bad pun, of different vehicles available by the year 2030. And I think this is a way to get Americans on board with the whole EV movement. So very clever. And I think some clever negotiations going on by Biden to get to this outcome. Sounds innovative. It's time to settle down with a good book. And when I say settle down with a good book, I mean start writing. Now, if you ever thought that writing a book would be pretty cool but couldn't quite get started, well, maybe technology can now help you get the ball rolling and at least continue to get the, keep that ball rolling as well. And that is a challenge, I think. The old story is that everyone's got one good story in them, everyone's got one good book in them, mm. but it's still a challenge to sit down and actually write that. And Mark Twain, maybe very talented, definitely, but maybe a little bit arrogant, was a bit dismissive of people who couldn't actually sit down to write a novel. And he said, a man who is not born with a novel writing gift has a troublesome time of it when he tries to build a novel. He has no clear idea of his story. In fact, he has no story. Uh, Zing. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I think he's probably got a point. But when Mark Twain was writing books, we didn't have technology to help us out. And one particular gentleman was trying his best to write a book. And what he actually found was he had some little plot gaps that happened. So someone that he might have killed off earlier in the story, suddenly was involved in a little bit of action later on in the sequence and then realised that that person had been killed off earlier. And so he was losing the sense of where all the characters in his plot were up to. So he developed this site called Linnit, L-Y-N-I-T. And the idea of Linnit is just to help you keep track of your novel, keep track of the plot, keep track of the characters, really just map out the entire process for where your novel's going to let you then sit down and go, I'm going to fill in the bits in between where all these pieces go. So it sounds like quite an innovative way. Uh, so it's just like a mind mapping. Like a mind map. Yeah, it's just a mind mapping tool. I wonder when you're sitting there watching the third or fourth or tenth season of a series and things are happening, I always want to know whether the people that have written that had always in mind that this is where it was going to end up or whether they started writing and they got the first couple of episodes out of the way and they went, oh, I know, we'll do this next and do that next. And 10 seasons later, they go, wow, I didn't know we'd end up here. Or whether they've got enough vision to say, no, this is where it was always going to go. But this sort of concept for building one novel means that you are really mapping out, as you say, a mind map, mapping out the whole process to the end game and then you just fill in all the bits in between. I think that's extremely cool and it just might get me started. <laughs> uh, if, anything's, <laughs> if anything gets is good to come out of uh, this COVID lockdown, uh, maybe one of those things might be a great library worth of literary gems from people sta- uh, staving off boredom and whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. Perhaps. <laughs> maybe. Now, you've got me really thinking about this next one. Uh, Do you place more value in protection of children or privacy of your personal content, folks, that's, that's on your phones and whatnot? Apple's quickly finding out where people sit on this line with an announcement about child abuse imagery. Matt, this is a big dilemma, and it's set to cause a big stir, I think. It is, and it's certainly divided opinions already with the short amount of time since we've seen this announcement. It really has divided opinions. Now, when you say to anyone, anyone that I know, any what I would call reasonable person, which it's hard to define that reasonable person, but anyone, and you say, are you okay with child abuse imagery? Well, I don't know anyone who would say, no, that's okay. Mm. Everyone would say, no, that's terrible. Anyone that's involved in that sort of action should be dealt with in the harshest possible way. So I think that condemnation is fairly universal. But the line starts to become a bit blurred when you've got someone like Apple who are now saying that they're going to start scouring iCloud photos. So all the photos that you've got on your Apple phone that are automatically uploaded to iCloud, they're going to scour through and use something they're calling neural match 
to check out images of child abuse imagery and then go a step further and report those people to the authorities in whatever country these crimes or, or these images are occurring in. Yeah, wow. So you start to go, wow, we don't want this happening, but do I want someone looking through every photo I've got on my phone? And it does raise some interesting questions. So I've got four kids and they've grown up and at times we've taken photos of them in the swimming pool. And I'm sure at some point in there, I've had a photo taken of those kids with out their clothing on or they've jumped out of the swimming pool and they've ripped their gear off. Now, it's probably on my phone. Therefore, it's probably in my iCloud. Therefore, am I next expecting a knock on the door from some police, not checking whether I'm saying in my house in lockdown, but taking me away because I've been suspected of abusive child images. So this is where it becomes very much a grey area. Grey area. It's a big ethical dilemma. You've got your, your own privacy of your own your own stuff and your own personal content, but but then, yeah, we want, sort of want... Want the people uh, want want people to go digging a little bit to be able to find the bad guys. There's lots of people that will say, "Oh, I've got nothing to hide." Yeah, w- welcome in. But there's a lot of people who, yeah, that, that are going to have a concern. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we might well actually go back a, a step. There was an example a few years ago where there was a terrorist organisation that the FBI caught and found, and they were guilty. They were convicted and they were guilty of some terrorism acts. And they actually had in what they captured from one of the raids they did. Some iPhones and the FBI of all organisations took those to Apple, a private organisation, and said, "Hi, we're the FBI. Do us a favour, will you? Unlock this phone, and we just want to see." I remember this. Yeah, yeah. I want to see if there's anything yeah. on this phone that might help us in any investigations, uncovering other people that might be involved, other plots, for example, there might be more deaths about to happen. And Apple said, "Sorry, we don't do that." But we're the FBI. Sorry, we're Apple. We don't do that. The privacy of our users is so important that we're going to say no, even though you've got a known terrorist and the phone from that known terrorist. So that was a big deal. Now, Apple made and continue to make a big deal about that because they say privacy is really important. Do you want security on your phone? Then you need to have an Apple phone. It's really part of that whole Mm. ecosystem they build up. And now it seems like they've done a complete 180 and they're not just going to unlock some images for an authority that comes along and says, we suspect this person of doing something, they're going to go and search for them themselves, first of all, and then basically report them, dob them into the authorities. So it, it is a really interesting change there. I suppose the big thing will be if they get it wrong a few times. Mm. That will be where people will be up in arms. What you're accusing me of, you've destroyed my life, the police have taken me away, my image is destroyed or my reputation is destroyed because you suspected me of something which was just taking a photo of one of my kids. Oh, Wow. And there I was thinking the vaccination check story was going to get the civil rights uh, activists wound up and sheesh. Right. Okay, Matt, what's next on the menu? Um, Hopefully something to settle us down. No chance. Oh, wait, hang on. Oh, no. No, no, no. How's your internet speed, folks? Here's the headline. The ACCC hauls Telstra, Optus and TPG to court over claims of NBN speeds. Have our telcos been taking us for a ride, Matt? Oh, I don't think so. I think this is a really complicated one. And you're right, we are stirring up some trouble this week, James, because when we talk about MBN and speeds, and then we say fibre to the node or fibre to the premises or mm-hmm. fibre to the curb, it really starts to get people stirred up because we had that whole situation where we had this promise of fibre being rolled out to every home across the nation. How wonderful would that be? And then at some point in time, government said, oh, you know what? 
fibre, overrated. We'll just lose that bit of copper. It's only been in the ground for the last 50 or 100 years, but it'll be right. Sure, the next level of communication can be delivered with that copper. So that's been the issue here. There isn't any trouble with the reporting speeds from the telcos when it's fibre to the premises. They've got a known quantity to work with. They've got nice new fibre to work with. They know they can deliver on those speeds. Where the issue has come is the ACCC has taken exception to the fact that the telcos offer certain speeds or advertise certain speeds for their services, but in fibre to the node, it's unknown whether you can get those speeds or not. If you happen to have a node just straight out the front of your place, you'll probably get those speeds, no issue at all. But if your node happens to be 50 metres, 100 metres up the road, you happen to be on the end of a loop, then you're probably not going to get those speeds. Now, in their defence, the three telcos have said, yes, we acknowledge that it's less than ideal, but it's not our fault. It's the MBN's fault. If they would just go and roll out the technology properly, then we wouldn't have this issue. So go and point to them. The ACCC is saying, no, we don't really care about your argument. You're the one advertising at the end of the day to consumers. You need to get it right. You need to do it better. Oh, wow. Yeah. Goodness me. So... So it's, either way, the consumer is still not happy. No, that's right. Well, I think the consumer will finally be happy when we do get fibre rolled out to every home. Yeah. And the really frustrating part now is it is the digital divide. In one city, in our city, for example, James, we've got four-sevenths of our premises are FTTP and three-sevenths are FTTN. And literally, I've driven down streets to show people the example. On one side of the street, it's FTTP. Those people can get gigabit download speeds on the other side of the street, FTTN, and if you're unlucky living a fair way from the node, you might get 20 meg download speeds. <laughs> and that is literally a piece of bitumen apart. So I think the real solution is we finally get to that stage where we just roll out fibre everywhere and be done with it. Patience is a virtue, so uh, my mother used to say. Okay, Matt, time to bring it home with a bang. What's the latest on Bitcoin? I see that the US is working on ways to create a Bitcoin tax. We've done a previous story, James, on some people saying they wouldn't mind getting their wages in Bitcoin. Yeah. And if you do that, the logic from some people was, I'd save on income tax. Now, I'm not sure if that's quite the idea of paying someone in Bitcoin, but it is an issue with the fact that it is quite difficult to tax people with Bitcoin. And in the US at the moment, they've got this huge infrastructure bill, a $28 billion infrastructure bill where a whole range of new infrastructure wants to be built, but they need to fund it somehow. And one of the ways they're trying to fund it is with a tax on Bitcoin. Now, it's interesting because we've talked about it before. Bitcoin seems like imaginary money, monopoly money, I think (laughs) you've called it. And when you start talking about taxing monopoly money, you're probably going to have to pay the US government in real money. They're probably not going to accept your taxes in Bitcoin. So you're making this money in imaginary stuff and saying, look at how much money I've made in my Bitcoin. And now I've got to find... X dollars to go and pay in real money to the government. Oh, I don't have that real money, but look at all this Bitcoin money I've got. So it's going to be a real disconnect. Yeah, yeah. so it's like passing go, collecting $200 of my Monopoly money, landing on the square just after Whitechapel Road, and uh, and then having to shell out for uh, the, the actual cash uh, for your tax. That's right. Okay. Every time you land on there, take $5 of real money out of your wallet and hand it over to someone. Me and more, you're collecting monopoly money. Mm. Now, I don't want to sound too harsh on Bitcoin. There are people who claim, James, to have made lots of money on Bitcoin, and good luck to them if they can do that. I also know people that have claimed to have made lots of money at the racetrack or on betting on the footy or whatever else it might have been. If they've done that, then good luck to them. I just don't have a lot of confidence that they're really delivering on some of those promises. But this will be a real thing if 
Bitcoin has got any future, and we're talking about cryptocurrencies in general, if they've got any future and want to be part of mainstream as such, then paying taxes on that might put a bit of a dint in how well they go going forward. Mm. Again, that'll be really interesting to see what comes of that and, and the people throwing up their arms about it. There it is, folks. We're done for another sterling episode of Tech Talk. You really stoked the fire this week, Matt. Thanks again. <laughs> I thought it was you stirring up trouble this week, James. I was trying to just go along quietly, but you just kept throwing in these stories that were just bound to cause some trouble. <laughs> yeah. But look, it's been interesting this week with us a couple of kilometres away. Hopefully the listeners found the quality was still fantastic. And hopefully next week we'll be out of this extreme lockdown and we might be able to be in the same room again. Fingers crossed we'll see how we go with that. I'm your host, folks, James Eddy, and we're looking forward to our next socially distanced home delivery in one week's time. Stay safe, people. Thank you.